Hey, everybody, it is Jeremy England back with another episode of Ohio Virtual Academy Music Appreciation Podcast. And we are, uh, well, I'm not alone. I'm here with my co host, uh, your favorite person, I'm sure, on the podcast, Miss Daphne Check. How are you today, Daphne? You just put so much pressure on me. Like, I, 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 how do we know that I'm the favorite? I think you're the favorite. Uh, we'll see. We have to go back and look at our solo episodes. Oh, no, no, don't do that. Who, don't do that. <laughs> see who the winner was. I don't want to compete. This is a friendly, happy place. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Well, it is week 56 or episode 56, I should say. And uh, we are continuing to highlight because of uh, International Women's History Month, uh, another female performer. And this is somebody that has been in the pipeline, I mean, well be before this month, uh, probably at the end of last year, <laughs> maybe. Uh, and this is going to be an episode where I don't talk very much, which is okay, uh, because this is a, dare I say, hero. No, that would be <laughs> of, an appropriate word. <laughs> uh, an appropriate word of Daphne. So I, I guess... Give us a little introduction of who we are talking about today, Daphne. So today we're going to talk about Keiko Abe. Um, I put in the notes that this is where I'm going to, I am going to fangirl on unprecedented levels, even though the Dolly episode was pretty close. Um, she's somebody who I have, uh, I've never met her. Uh, I don't know her personally, um, but I have looked up to her since I was 18 years old. Um, I'm much older than that now. Um, and so she has been a professional hero of mine um, since I was a kid. Um, part of that is she is the very first female percussionist and percussion and composer I have ever heard of. Um, when I originally got to college, um, Everything I knew about percussion was pretty male dominated. And it wasn't because, you know, my high school didn't believe in women percussionists or anything. As a matter of fact, my percussion instructor in high school was a female. However, um, this was the first person, the first female I had ever heard of to do this professionally, that this was her job full time. I, I guess even at 18, I still remember thinking, and it seems so antiquated now to admit this out loud, but I still remember thinking, wow, a woman does this all the time. It's not, she's not just a teacher during the day and, you know, plays a couple. This is what she does. She's a performer and a composer. And, um, I, I'm, t I was totally that person that as soon as I learned about her, I had a poster of her on my dorm room wall, um, because I just wanted to be like her uh, maybe not a professional. My, my aspirations have never been to be a professional musician, but to see someone, um, who was a woman like me be able to dominate this sort of male dominated area at the time, um, was just a lot of inspiration to me. So, um, you know, I'll never probably meet her, but it's still, um, I think she deserves a lot of highlights and I, she deserves, to me, uh, in my very biased opinion, all the admiration in the world. <laughs> nice. Well, that's a very nice introduction of of her. I admittedly, I had never heard of her uh, until you said anything, and uh, a lot of reasons for that. Well, mostly, probably because I'm not in the percussion world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it's, I've heard you talk about her a lot now. I mean, allude to her and and bring her up. So I'm excited to get to know who she is uh, through like your research and just who you know who she is as a person overall. Because the cool thing about like these people that we look up to is um, like when you learn their story, sometimes usually it makes it even more inspiring. I think I like to know people's stories and to see how they got to the spot that they're at. Because when you start to do that, I think that it starts to make it seem possible a lot of times. Like a lot of these people that we look up to, uh, if you know them, typically are just like normal people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what I think is so cool about, uh, I, I'm going to say her name, Kaiko Abe, Ke- right? Kaiko Abe, yep. Kiko, Kiko. And I will say too, uh, I'm not versed in Japanese, so I I apologize if I yeah. There's a lot of Japanese words in here, <laughs> uh, but like she's like this <laughs> right. inspiration to you, this larger than life person. Uh, but she probably just is a normal person, and I think that's what's cool because it makes it approachable. It makes whoever's listening to this and however uh, you want to go into the world, whether it's in music or not, like everybody is just a person at the heart of it, and. Um, you know, so hopefully as we get to break down her story and you get to fangirl here, Daphne, um, you know, I hope we can start to see some parallels of this person that has inspired us for our whole life, but also is on a whole different level than we are. Yeah, She's, it's funny you say that because she is a very quote unquote normal person. <clears throat> Pardon me. She is, um widely regarded as a very quiet, humble person too. Um, everything I've read about her, um, she takes a piece of humility and quiet reverence with her, which I, I also find fascinating because, um, you know, there's a lot of musicians out there who carry their ego on their sleeve and not their heart. And she's not necessarily one of those people. And I, I greatly admire that about her as well. And I think that's just a life thing, right? Like we can appreciate somebody just being a kind person and being a nice person. Um, and maybe that's partly why I admire her too. I mean, that's, that's kind of like Dolly Parton in a way, you know, we talked about Dolly last week. She's, she's a bit larger than life, but she's also known as being kind and sweet. And, um, you know, Kikabe gets uh, a similar, a, a similar kind of vibe with her. It just makes it easier to like them yeah. through everything because there are people that that I look up to musically that the more I learn about them, the more I'm like, man, why do you make it so hard? <laughs> like, why do you make it so hard to enjoy your music now knowing that you're kind of a trash person? <laughs> trash but, uh, person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, but I think, yeah, I think you highlighted that well with Dolly, uh, who just, again, is just likable for all we know, you know, all around. Um so okay, let's let's start at the very beginning, Daphne. Let's let's go for it, and I'll just kind of interrupt you every once in a while <laughs> and make sure that you breathe. Yes, if you, I slowed down on the coffee today because I just I get all giggly and smiling <laughs> when I talk about her because yeah. you know again you're going to hear my own personal inflection here, everybody, because like I said, she's somebody I've looked up to as a ch- as a child and or well child, okay, eighteen, but. At this point in my life, 18 as a child. Um, right. Some of our listeners will be like, that's an adult. Right. You know? Exactly. Sorry, <laughs> my students. Um, <laughs> but okay. So um, she was born in Tokyo, Japan in 37. Um, so she is on the, uh, I think, I never could find actually anything about this part, but um, I think she's 
kind of retired now. Um, Because as you can tell by her birth year, um, she's a little older at this point. Um, She starts playing xylophone quite early in her life, and she's a little bit of a prodigy. She starts really early, and here's the first name I'm going to butcher, and I apologize. She starts studying with somebody named Ichiyasabuki. Practice that. Um, And she starts working with that person, and by 13, she's already won her first talent contest. Um, so that's pretty young. I wasn't, I can't imagine again at 13, you're winning these contests. Now it's not just a contest that she wins. She wins like this pseudo national talent competition, um, with NKH, the NKH talent competition, which after, um, looking up some more stuff, NKH is basically like the Japanese broadcasting company. Like, you know how we have NBC and all those kind of things here in America, this is a little bit of the Japanese equivalent, <clears throat> at least at the... T- it's like America's Got Talent. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so when she wins this, people start recognizing her talent, um, even at this early age. And so she starts She starts to um, perform live on the radio. So she just starts... I don't know if she really was getting fans um, exactly, but she was definitely getting her music heard. And one thing I'll point out about this, you'll notice in the show notes, I probably should have said this first, you'll notice in the show notes, there's not a ton of resources like online about her. I mean, yes, there's stuff about her online, but if you Google her, most of what you're going to see is her actual uh, compositions and stuff. Trying to find stuff out about her life has been, was a little bit challenging, um, not because she's not forthcoming with that information per se, um, but she just, um, it's just, she's kind of more known for just being completely awesome on the marimba. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to do her, her life justice <laughs> because there's not a lot out there. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're listening to me tell her story. Um, I hopefully am not butchering it and hopefully have put things in the right order. Um, so as I was saying though, she starts, um, performing at a very young age, like 13, which is kind of a common theme for some of our more well-known musicians. We even talked about that with Dolly Parton. She was performing at this point, uh, in her career too. Um, so she's obviously quite good, but like most musicians or like a lot of people, Um, Her father really wasn't digging this music thing. Um, He really just wasn't sure about it. So he wanted her to study medicine. And so she take she took a break, even though she was clearly incredibly accomplished, even at this young age. She listened to what her father said and she takes a break so so that she can study medicine. But um, this is a rather short lived thing. Um, her heart just was kind of hearkening her back to music. And so even though she tried to appease her father, like a lot of us probably do, um, she eventually just comes back to music because that's where her heart was. So she starts playing more. Um, so she, um, again, I'm going to butcher this. (laughs) She attends the Tokyo Gaguki university, She earns a bachelor's and master's degrees in music education. Now, this always kind of fascinated me because she's got the papers to be a music teacher, but it's kind of not what she wants to do. Um, Now, as you'll see later on in life, she still is a teacher at heart um, because she, you know, gives lessons and stuff. But 
even though she went and did this, um, you know, this wasn't the thing she really was intending to do. She really wants to perform. Now, there's a little bit, um, there's two things that kind of happen here. And to be honest, I couldn't really figure out what the timeline is here. So I'll start with one and then I'll go to the other. Um, In 1962, um, and she does this for two years, but starting in 1962, she um, and two former classmates of hers from from university created the Zebek Marimba Trio. Even I did not know much about this group that she was in at this time because it's again it's not necessarily what she's known for uh she's known for the stuff that comes later in her career but um even when people have studied her um this doesn't come up now the group plays mostly popular music and folk songs um particularly japanese folk songs and there's this is where um, Abe starts to arrange some of her own stuff. Uh, when we get into her work, you'll see that she does she likes um, Japanese folk songs and telling stories through them. So um, this this kind of comes up again. But from what I can understand from the um, timeline of her life, this is where some of her arrangements really start going. Um, but as I said, this isn't a particularly known time in her life. We know about it, but. Not a ton that we know about it. Um, One of the striking things I found was a quote by Rebecca Kite. Um, She is another just terrific uh, percussionist uh, in the world. And she she had known uh, Kieko for very many years. I think they met in 81, and then they've had a continued friendship and professional relationship since then. But Rebecca Kite um, really spent some time trying to document Keiko's life um, and tells this story. And I've got the um, introduction linked in the show notes. But she tells this story about even though she had known uh, Keiko Abe for years, she didn't know basically anything about the Zbeck Marimba trio. She like knew nothing. This was toward the end of her research in her life. Um And so it really even catches Rebecca Kite off guard. Like, again, she knew it, but she didn't really get to hear it till toward the end of her studies about uh, Keiko's life. Um, Because she didn't know much about it, Rebecca Kite actually goes back to visit Japan a few times to learn more about this time. And there's this really lovely little anecdote in Rebecca Kite's introduction that talks about how they were just sitting there talking after their interviews one day and... All of a sudden, Kiko's like, do you want to hear this CD? Do you want to listen? And it was the trio. And Rebecca Kite's like, yes, I absolutely have to hear it. And so Rebecca Kite kind of fangirls, even though after all this time, um, she had known Kiko Abe. Um, So I think this has been recorded now um, and that there is some of this out there. But even up until this point, um, when Rebecca Kite was interviewing her, this was a very little known part of her life and at this point she Keiko Abe was world famous so I I just found that really fascinating and interesting (laughs) I think that like it is interesting but I don't think it's that weird as I listen to like her early story and being talented and how music often gets treated especially and I don't know her father's history times is like people treat music as like the secondary option like you're very good at music but 
like it's not going to be the thing that you do the whole time. And so like that, you see that like her dad wanted to do medicine, right? Because whether he could conceptualize that music was a valid career or not, I mean, it's a hard career by no means. Oh, yeah. I mean, medicine's not easy <laughs> either. Uh, but like it's not, it doesn't seem like a sustainable career because if you're not in the world of music, those people, music people, seem kind of like rare in odd in few and far between and even like going to college like you can't maybe understand the possibilities that there are to do with music until you start to get exposed to other people even going back to what you said like there's a woman who is doing this full time you know like she's not teaching it's not a side gig she's doing this full time and so even in you know 19 whatever hundreds 1990 2005 98 there you go so (laughs) i guess i just told me even then (laughs) there you go like you got exposed to something that you had never seen before Mm -hmm. and um were able to see a world that was bigger than what you had known and so in a way, it's like not surprising that she was like, oh, by the way, I used to have like this trio because in college, it's this time of exploration and a time of like trying new things. Like I was just thinking when you're talking about that, I sang with the trio for like one performance one time, like with two girls that I I don't even remember what it was for or like I remember one of the girls, I don't know who the other one was, but like, you know, it was just these experiences you had Uh in college, like discovering herself. And when you are as old as she is, I, uh, she's 84, I think I looked it up. But yeah. Her wiki um, page has it calculated. She's 83. Right. I mean, she's that's 83. 83. That's almost, that's almost three of my lifetimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I could imagine like, oh, by the way, back, you know, 60 years ago, I used to do this one little thing <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> in college. But yeah, it is interesting and in how what sticks to you is important into your mind as well or not. Yeah, and and that's kind of what Rebecca Kite's point was when she was writing the um, intro for the bio for her. She, you know, it's like these little experiences now that Abe's had that is just, she's like, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh yeah, I forget. You know, yeah. it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like that. And yeah. and like even the next thing that I was going to say, according to Wiki, while she was doing this trio, she had a Japanese television show which taught children how to play marimba and xylophone. Which, okay, I I tried to find a clip because <laughs> you know I want this on DVD. Like I want every one of these shows so badly. I would own it. I would pay. Right. Listen, I will pay any amount of money. Um, I want to see these. <laughs> um, but so she was doing that while having a, 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 her own radio show called Good Morning Marimba. Now, if I could turn into Good Morning Marimba every morning, I would. <laughs> Straight <laughs> up. But how darn charming is it that she had a little te- TV show and a little little radio show that like helped? Ch- I mean, come on. That's just so... Right, which I don't think that like speaks to the idea that she just forgot that she did a trio, you know, yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> she just magically does this. So at least this is according to to Wiki. Her even her personal webpage, I couldn't really find much or more information on this. And I am sure that a fellow percussionist who's listening is probably like, uh, Daphne, I got this. Okay, fine. Send it my way. But I, I didn't see yeah. much on there because again, I, I do have a little trouble. There's it's a little hard to find some information on her. Um, just on and the I think web. Part, 
when you're like looking at her website, and this is good advice, I think, for any young people, when you're like trying to showcase who you are as a person, like it it can be seem really easy and it could seem really right to like list everything that you've ever done. You know, like I'm thinking of like resumes. Like it's easy to be like, I do this and this and this and this and this and this instead of like putting out the very best of who you are. And when you, uh, I'm not sure when uh, this, you know, when she was doing the research on the bio when Rebecca Kite was doing this research, but like when you have such a long career and you can choose like not even necessarily the best, but like what represents you the best, um, that's, I think some of that, like, you know who you are, yes. one, you know, like you're very self-aware of what you're proud of or what you think makes you you and what you choose to highlight in your career. But that's something we should all kind of think about, like, who are you as a person? Um, and then, you know, that's what gets highlighted, especially if she's like still composing, which you said she's kind of retired now. But, you know, um, when you're still composing, like, it's nice to highlight all your old stuff, but you got to make money. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you still got to do it. And and listen, she's not hurting because when I get to all the stuff that she's written, people are playing her works. Because when it comes to, you know, what, what she has done for the field, um, there are few people who rise to her level. Um, she is very generally and widely accepted in the percussion community as one of the most forefront game game changers. Um, and one of the ways, and this is the one that I think is going to blow up everybody's brain here. <laughs> um, she helped create the modern marimba. Um, now let me kind of explain what I mean by that. Um, back in the day, um, a marimba was usually limited to four, maybe four and a third octaves, four and a half even, but in the early 60s, the Yamaha Corporation decided they wanted to help or they wanted like to make some new instruments. And some of this was just creating uniformity through folk instruments. We've talked about in the past, like different areas of the world have different types of instruments. And the Yamaha Corporation said, let's make a standard version of these instruments so that everybody knows what they're purchasing. It's kind of like you know, how car manufacturers create the same car. They wanted to kind of make, do like mass duplication of, of a instrument and standardize it. So this was in the early sixties. And we've talked a lot about the Yamaha corporation on this podcast. What don't they build? What don't they do? (laughs) Right. And so, um, they decided that to do this uniformity of making instruments, they wanted to reach out to, like instrumentalists who were currently in the field. And of course, at that time, um, Keiko Abe was making quite a name for herself. So uh, Yamaha Corporation calls her up um, and says, hey, can you help us? Uh, we want to do this. And it wasn't just because she was such a masterful player. Her, and I'll get into this in the next, in a few minutes, but she has a a very lovely way of approaching Um, the instrument. And because of that, that was another reason why Yamaha reached out to her. So they reach out to her. um, She agrees and she starts helping, um, you know, putting, helping them put this together, especially because she really thinks a lot about putting marimbas in ensembles, which at the time 
was not a common thing. It's much more commonplace in 2020, but at the time, marimbas were just kind of their own thing on the side. Nobody was counting the marimba as an orchestral instrument. She helps usher this wave in. Not only does she have that perspective and do that, she is the person on the team who encourages them to add the additional octave. So if you remember a few minutes ago, I said that at the time there was only maybe four, four and a third, maybe four and a half. She convinces Yamaha to make a five octave marimba. This is full stop a game changer in percussion land. Um, The five octave marimba is a very standard piece of equipment now, particularly for the solo, if you're a soloist and performing soloist. Um, Rebecca Kite even talks about how there's pieces that she couldn't play until she saw Kiko Abe perform on her five octave, which causes Rebecca Kite to go get a five octave marimba. Um, and a lot of her, a lot of Kiko Abe's works are for, are written for five octave marimba, but she, she's kind of the person that if you, if you talk about the modern marimba, she gets, you know, you point to her. Um, that's an, an astounding accomplishment that she has had her, she's had such an influence on this modern evolution of an instrument that has been is, is as old as time. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, uh, what a unique perspective. I'm sure being able to articulate if she's trained as an educator um, uh, helps as well. You know, like there's a lot of artist series type instruments. I think in the guitar world, like you get mm-hmm. like the, you know, John Mayer, replicate guitar mm-hmm. and it might be a good guitar for him and people who like i guess want to sound like him even though they won't necessarily be able to but to be able to say this instrument will really benefit from this for a mass of people is very different than saying this instrument will benefit me uh in this way um so it's an interesting perspective to have an interesting way that she was able to shape this instrument for everybody and so much so that uh, Yamaha named the first set of mallets after her. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, as a percussionist, you obviously have to have sticks and mallets too. So, you know, she obviously makes this gigantic standard change with Yamaha instruments and the, the five octave marimba. So Yamaha's like, okay, we're also going to name marimba mallets after you too. So you can purchase the Abe mallets. Um, now I will say this is a very common thing now, just like you were talking about with special guitars, very common in percussion land that you have a, if you're a, a, D, a good performer and, um, you know, are working with a company, they'll name some mallets after you. Um, matter of fact, there'll be a lot of times <laughs> that, um, you know, if, if you were asking me, Jeremy, well, what mallets would you use for this? I would probably say to you, I would use the insert last name. Here, like I'd be, I'd be naming huh. them from somebody. I would tell you to use the England brand mallets. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because you obviously have mallets named after you. <laughs> would it surprise you? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, I must say. <laughs> yeah. No, I do not have any mallets. Oh, I I'd buy have them, nothing though. named after me. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, this isn't. You know, it's funny. I I put that afterward because it seems to be honest as a percussionist to have a set of mallets named after you is is a big deal, but not as a big of a deal as creating the five octave marimba. Um, so it's almost like a footnote. And the fact that she has a whole series of mallets named after her, and that's a footnote, kind of indicates how big she actually is and what her importance is. <laughs> so 
I, I wanted to take a second and, and talk about her style and approach. And basically the bottom, I will say this before I move on the rest of her life. She spends performing, writing the whole nine. I mean, she's, she's kind of the rock star, but one of the interesting things about her, although there are many, is I really appreciate the approach that she takes to the marimba. She has this um, very deep respect for the instrument itself. You know, marimba is made of a frame and pieces of wood, and you actually hit the thing. And, you know, we take that as percussionists, just like, well, that's our, that's our instrument, and a lot of times we just go and start hitting it, right? But she takes this very lovely reverence to the instrument. And so I'm going to, I'm going to actually use a quote from her, um, for during her induction speech, during her induction speech for the percussive arts society, um, she says, quote, I have great respect for the marimba. When I play, I have a great desire to find its expressive possibilities, knowing that at one time, this most beautiful wood came from a living tree with its own history and experience. It's as if the marimba bar breathes like a living tree. And when I make music, I want to breathe with it. And I just that the whole that just always just speaks to my soul because I just love that she has this beautiful reference to the materials. Like she's literally thinking about the fact that what she's playing on used to be a living thing. And she approaches her playing um, with that reverence. And I've never I am sure there's other percussionists out there who do that, but I've never um, she's one of the first people I ever hear like talk about that. Now, the flip side of that coin is um, this is it sounds like she is passive in her playing or timid, and this is extremely not the case. Um, She's very experimental and really pushes the bars sound. So, you know, as you're striking something, it has a point of no return where the sound doesn't sound good. She's not afraid to go there. Matter of fact, when you play, she, when she plays, she's rather aggressive, I would say. Um, and, and I've got a link to her playing one of the few I could really find, um, on YouTube of her playing, uh, is it Wind in the bamboo grove? I think that's the one I picked. Um, and she like goes all out. (laughs) So, um, I think she's fascinating in the fact that she has this beautiful regard and respect for the instrument, but is not afraid to push the instrument to the limit. And I just fangirl moment. I think that's so beautiful because it's just a cool way to approach the actual instrument themselves. I I just don't know too many people who have those thoughts toward their instrument. So I just love that so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, when you are all into a world, you know, everything everything matters um, and everything is just important. And it just shows to show how much you know your instrument. You, you hang around guitarists, it'll be the same way. Like they'll know every crack and grain of wood and, you know, tone. And I mean, everything goes into everything. And just recognizing there is definitely a different connection with nature, but I think it just goes to show that there is um, – to me, when I hear her say that, it goes beyond the present, but it is – music is something that comes before uh, we even put the sound into the world. And I think with that connection, 
um, is pretty impressive. And even her life, you know, she makes this quote. She recognizes that the music is coming from the trees that came from the ground, but will last beyond the moment that she plays those notes all the way to the point of 2021 where we sit here and we talk about her. So it's kind of like this long-lasting, there's this one singular note that you play, but the reverberations go forward and backwards throughout time, which I think is kind of a a cool aspect of this and this deep connection of of even just playing the wood, you know, and recognizing that it's wood, that didn't start as marimba, but started as a tree. Yeah, it's it's oh. like she dabbles a little bit in philosophy, and yeah. and I just yeah. I just respect that so much because, you know, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the notes that we don't remember the other stuff that's happening around the notes, <laughs> and she she doesn't really do that. Um, that she just she's got a she's got a a real reverence um, that I think is is pretty unique to her. So, yeah, you know, she there's a couple other things I want to point out about her. One um, is that um, she credits improv as part of her success. She she was noted in the I think this was also in her speech to um, the Percussive Arts Society upon the induction of her into the Hall of Fame. She talks a lot. She talks a bit about how at the time early in her career, she was trying to emulate the sound she was hearing from other artists like you know, that she was trying to be like them. And she has this epiphany that she can't, she can't use their voice to speak her own voice. She's got to figure out who she is. And the way she decided to do that was through improv. And so she starts learning how to be more masterful improvisation. And this carries through because then she, she's got the ability to manipulate whatever piece she's playing and um, make it stretch and pull in different ways that others uh, may not have that ability to because they didn't do, you know, they don't know improv. Again, I'll point back to her. I think it was in the Rebecca Kite piece that I read that um, Rebecca Kite, Kiego Abe looks at Rebecca Kite at one point and says, hey, let's do a, a class together. Let's do a master class. And you play this piece straight. Now, in, in music world, what that means is play it exactly as written verbatim on the page. She tells Rebecca Kite to play it strange. Kiko Abe goes and plays it, but then does like the improv, stretching, pulling, changing it. Now she's playing the same piece, but she's taking more liberty with it. And she wouldn't have had the ability to take the liberty with it if she wasn't as comfortable with improv because she's doing this on the spot. So she she credits improv to helping find her voice and helping her to become more masterful at the craft, which it clearly was successful for her. <clears throat> And, and she does this when she's teaching other people, too, which is the one other thing I want to point out here. Even at this point in her career, she's probably one of the and will forever be one of the, the most famous marimbas that have walked on this planet. But even so, she's still very committed to to the growth of young musicians to uh, marimba outreach, if you will. She still is uh, likes to premiere works by young artists. She likes to give lessons, um, that kind of thing. She still is happy to premiere pieces by other composers. She wants to be able to do that. And so there's this, again, maybe I'm fan, I'm, well, I'm definitely fangirling here, but there's definitely this educator piece of her because she's still committed 
to the growth and well-being of other musicians. Um, she's still very committed to that, and it sh- and she still um, is doing things to you know promote these other people. She doesn't have to do that at this point. I mean, she's everybody knows who she is. She's changed the game. She helped build a marimba for crying out loud, but she's still helping people get better. Um, in in again, I re- reference her uh, speech to be inducted at the progressive for into the Progressive Arts Society. Um, Evelyn Glennie has a quote in that speech. Um, Evelyn Glennie, another lovely, wonderful percussionist um, who I actually saw live and I think I met in passing and I fangirled on her too. But there's a theme here, folks. I'm fangirling on everything. But um, Evelyn Glennie, or Evelyn Glennie, Evelyn Glennie in her quote from this induction says, quote, During 1986, I went to Japan to study with Keiko. Her lessons were full of energy and full of space as well. There was time to think. We played together. We improvised together. Our lessons were full of communication, end quote. And so that, I think, kind of encapsulates what it's like to play in a room with Keiko Abe. She doesn't, she takes her experience and puts it into somebody else rather than just being like, I'm me. Uh, I could do what I want. <laughs> She's still committed to putting good energy in the world. And I think that kind of relates to, you know, her reflections on the instrument itself. But uh, so I think this speaks to her character. If you take these three, these things that I just mentioned um, and think about who she is as a person, I think you get a good picture of the kind of human that's standing behind the marimba. Yeah, it's interesting because you said when she was developing the marimba, she very much thought about the marimba as being part of the ensemble, which had never really been done before. But then we have this whole section about her finding an individual voice. And it's an interesting balance to have because I know a lot of soloists who aren't very good ensemblists, and I know a lot of ensemblists that will not make very good soloists. At all, And it takes a unique type of person to be able to insert your voice into an ensemble in a way that is uh, beneficial and helpful. Um, and to be able to go back and forth between those two worlds, because uh, they're so different. It is such a unique spot to be in. But I, I do really appreciate this idea of finding your own voice in like what you said, understanding that this instrument, which is unique by itself, has its own voice, especially if it's coming from natural wood. Um, it's you know has a unique story, and the tree is unique, and all that. But when I teach vocal lessons, or I have people that come and like audition for various things that I get to see, or just young people, you know, oftentimes they're imitating pretty much their favorite artist. And I know I did when I was a kid. Oh, same. Um, they're listening to whoever's on the radio and then they're trying to sing and and it doesn't work for their voice. And then you learn about transposition and that changes the world for a vocalist. But like you try to copy these sounds, but your voice might not fit for that. And that could be very frustrating for a lot of people to try to, try to emulate your favorite artist, but not be able to do so in a way that feels like it covers them but also is your own style because you're always fighting that battle and some of that is just being comfortable with the voice that you've been gifted or you know or talents you've been gifted is finding where that is and how you can express yourself in that way so it's pretty cool improv 
is at the very beginning just making a bunch of mistakes <laughs> until you learn to control it. You know what that I mean? It's kind of it. like that is it. <laughs> and once you like start doing stuff and you start experimenting and you start feeling comfortable comfortable enough to do that, like you're like, oh, you know what? That sounded really good. And you can start to put that those tools in your tool belt. And then when you like are composing like she did, or you're performing, and you could say, let me let me pull this out and and put this together. You know, like not all people who are improving or soloing are making up stuff completely from scratch. You know, it's all tools and scales and, you know, all the practice they've put behind it. And um, even going back to what we were talking about earlier about her just knowing who she is and expressing her space in the world, um, that comes from really knowing, like, what your sound is, you know, what expresses your sound and when you can harness that and i guess apparently just be a juggernaut of a performer like she is um you know it, you become world famous mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know and you get inducted into all these crazy organizations and you change the world and you change the instrument and um and i do want to point out too that she started for like in terms of prodigies <laughs> she started pretty late you know 13 or whatever uh winning her first competitions but like she obviously has put in a lot of work and just because you're talented at something doesn't mean you're going to be good at it forever. And I thought it was cool that you had highlighted that she gives lessons and premieres young people's works because what I was thinking, like you say, like she doesn't have to do that. You're right. Uh, She doesn't. And she's a composer. So it's not like she's not writing music that she enjoys, but like young people keep you young. (laughs) And so she she didn't have to, but you just become old. Then you become, you know, the once world-class marimba player, you know, or like this once amazing composer instead of innovating and creating and staying young and learning new techniques from young people and challenging yourself. And, and anytime it's you write your own music, you know it very well. Uh, and when you start to premiere other people's stuff who has a very clear vision for what they want their sound to sound like, and you have a very clear vision of what your sound is playing, it creates new creativity. And that's super cool. I think that's a nice reciprocal thing. And using that using that education, you know, that teacher mindset all the way through, that's pretty cool. Well, it's, that's one of the, another thing that I just find interesting. She knows she, you know, back in the day, she knew she wanted to perform. She got her education yeah. degree. Yeah, okay. But, and she went on to perform. But there is still shades of teacher with her and they, they show up her whole life. Um, and I just, I just think that's admirable. I, I really do. And maybe that's because I'm both a musician and a teacher. And so when I see those colors of people, uh, or, or like the colors of their personality, uh, shine through in those ways, um, I, I guess I endear myself to that. <laughs> um, so I totally admit my bias here, but, um, I just she she still thinks this is an important endeavor and that has never grown out of her, Um, which is why she has all the awards and honors she has um, to list just some of them. Um, And probably my favorite, she is the first female to be inducted into the Percussive Arts Society uh, Hall of Fame, and that happened in 1993 in Columbus, Ohio, which I love. Also, given when I know this probably when this would have happened, I can tell you the moment 
I decided I was going to be a music teacher and it was in November of 93, which probably would have been around this exact same time. Now I didn't know her yet. I didn't know anything about her. Cause remember I don't learn about her for like five more years. Cause I would have been 13 at the time. So her energy's just exuded over central Ohio so. and you just absorbed some of that like a superhero. Yes, that's what I like to think. That's my very fantasy <laughs> yeah. fairy tale version of it. But the, I'll allow uh, thank it. you. Thank you very much. Um, so be, I like to just think that at the time she's getting inducted was the time I tried, decided to change my life. I just, it's yep. one of those weird coincidences, um, but I love it nonetheless. <laughs> um, she's awarded the Fine Arts Festival Award in Japan in 68, 69, 71, 74, 76, and 89. She's written more than 80 pieces, commissioned more than 70 pieces. She's performed over 186 world premieres. <laughs> she's recorded over 50 titles, and she's taught master classes at over 90 schools com- across the globe. So, She's no joke. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she's no, she's joke, no yeah. joke. Um, but none of those, you know, I would, I would bet that she looks at those and goes, yeah, those are just things that happened to me. Now let me go play because that's the type of person she is. So if you're interested in listening to her, which I please do, um, I'd listed a couple pieces that I think are, um, very interesting. I should have put frogs down. Um, frogs is one Michi, um, uh, Michi, in particular, and Dream of the Cherry Blossoms. Uh, both are pretty standard rep for like college senior recitals. Um, a lot of people do those. Uh, Prism is a great piece. And then I have linked um, the piece Wind, Wind in the Bamboo Grove. If you go to YouTube and look up um, any of these pieces or anything by her, um, there's not a lot of her playing. There's a, if you go, it can be overwhelming if you go to YouTube and just put in Michi because it'll just be everybody recording their senior recital, uh, playing Michi. So, you know, if you really want to see her play, make sure you, um, are looking for her there. Um, but those are just where I'd start. But as I said earlier, she's got so many pieces that to choose from, but those are the ones, um, that usually stick out for me. Uh, for listening to her. So, um, you know, with all that being said, uh, just uh, uh, go listen to her. And I will, I'll mention this too, before we close, her music may not sound like what you think it will, um, given how I've, you know, how we've tried to paint a picture of her uh, verbally over this podcast. um, You might have a, uh, there, there might be a sense of that, you know, she's very demure and, 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 um, kind of soft-spoken when she gets to the marimba, you'll be pleasantly surprised to see that that is generally not the case for her. Um, she's very much all in when she's behind the instrument and um, there's no holding back with her. And you'll see what I was talking about, about pushing the limits of the sound. She really does go there. So even though we're talking about a person who has a lot of reverence for the art and the craft and the instrument, um, She's not shy musically. So um, don't take my word for it, though. Go see what I mean. Go look her up. Go listen to some of that stuff. And just God bless this woman. Seriously. Like, thank you for letting me fangirl on her because she's meant a lot to me personally. And I just enjoy sharing about her. So yay, ladies in music. (laughs) I don't know how to end, but yay that. Yeah. I'll tell you the first piece I'm going to listen to is Prism because any song that's called Prism is guaranteed to be good. That's my theory. Yeah. Uh, if a song is named Prism, 
uh, you got to listen to it. It's going to be There cool. you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I really, any piece. She is it, quite unique in what a fascinating story and how um, I didn't know any of this. And it's so funny that you'd mentioned the marimba. I'm glad you put that piece in there. Daphne and I were talking before this episode uh, a couple of days ago, and I just said, you know, there's like no instruments like created or invented by uh, women. Um, and I thought that was interesting. She's like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you what we're going to talk about. And I was like, all right, I'm excited because it's it's so cool. And I just, what a, what a powerhouse. And when you were reading through all those pieces, I, I think I said, oh, dang, when you said she performed over 186 world premieres. <laughs> you know, like, that's a lot. Yeah. She's so, been on the stage before. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> and doubt. And you can look her up. That's so all it, her on her professional website is where I pulled that uh, information from. Just make sure um, when you go to her website, she is Japanese. She's from Japan. So um, you may need to translate some of the stuff if you go to her website. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and I think like Chrome and Safari will have those yeah. automatic translators built in. So don't be afraid. I have all the stuff linked. I have uh, – well, you linked them. I just actually linked them in the show notes. But Daphne provided resources for her Wikipedia, her Hall of Fame uh, for the Percussive Art Society, the intro from Rebecca Kite, uh, her homepage, and then a YouTube video that I suggest you all just check out. And hopefully you all can become fangirls like Daphne and I am slowly becoming uh, of, (laughs) of this powerhouse of a composer and if you would like to interact with us or you know like you have if you have that awesome recording that you want to send Daphne uh, for any amount of money she said don't forget uh, you can find us at OHVA music on Twitter Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy P England Uh, feel free to reach out to me there and contact me our podcast website is anchor.fm forward slash OHVA music. And there you can leave voice messages for us or find our contact information that way as well. Daphne, I just, uh, I shouldn't even show up today. Uh, <laughs> <No>. So <laughs> no, it's totally cool. I, I just appreciated listening and learning. So thank you for bringing all this uh, information about this wonderful composer to us. And with that, y'all will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.